When Joey Krug was 10 years old, his dad bought him an old Apple computer on eBay. Although neither realized it at the time, it would prove to be a timely gift. Around that same time, um, my brother got sick with this really rare disease called hemolytic uremic syndrome. And uh, he had this variant that you know, is super rare, only about 600 people uh, in the world have it. And uh, programming was kind of a way to, to take my mind off that. Krug's brother did recover, and Krug pretty much forgot about programming till he was 15 years old when he discovered Bitcoin. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. His exploration of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency led Joey Krug to develop Augur, a decentralized cryptocurrency gaming platform. Prediction markets like Augur can range from the benign, such as betting on sports, weather, and politics, to the sinister, including so-called assassination markets, where people bet on celebrity killings of politicians and other famous people, or predict the number of people killed in a terrorist attack. Joining me now to discuss how prediction markets work and where the cryptocurrency industry and markets are headed is Joey Krug. He's the co-CIO at Pantera Capital, one of the largest blockchain-focused investment firms. Krug also is co-founder of the Forecast Foundation, which developed Augur. Joey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Describe the computer that your dad gave you when you were 10 and what it was like to first start using it and to learn to program with it. Yeah, so my dad bought me an old old Apple II GS. I think it was one of the like nicer models of the Apple II, but of course he bought it, you know, decades later, so it was pretty cheap on eBay. You know, there are there are kind of a few things you could do. You could sort of program in the command line uh, using AppleSoft Basic, which is sort of a, a language that um, I think initially Wozniak uh, did a lot of work on. Uh, Steve Wozniak built that and. You know, there wasn't a whole lot you could do with it. Like you could write, you know, fairly simple programs. Um, you could write programs that would, uh, you know, make small games like text-based games. And, you know, you could do a few other things, uh, but it wasn't super extensible. And then uh, the Apple II did have like a UI as well. Uh, although I didn't really use that as much because I was more uh, just playing around with with basic. And that was also the year when you and your family had a family crisis. What happened? Yeah, so around that same time, um, my brother got sick with this really rare disease called hemolytic uremic syndrome. And uh, he had this variant that, you know, is super rare, only about 600 people uh, in the world have it. And uh, programming was kind of a way to, to take my mind off that. So and how did your brother do afterwards? Did he recover? Yeah, he did. So <clears throat> uh, eventually, we ended up kind of coming across this experimental treatment uh, for a drug called Solaris, uh, which is used for another another disease called PNH, and it ends up that the Solaris drug actually works pretty well uh, for atypical HUS. And so, you know, as soon as he started getting that, uh, he made a, a fairly rapid uh, recovery, and, and you know, he's fine now. Uh, he has to get this medicine every every two weeks. Uh, it's an infusion, but it basically sort of negates uh, all the effects of of the disease. But he ended up in the hospital for a year. So I guess having this computer was a way for you to keep your mind off things. Yeah. Um, 
and, and during that time, you know, the, when he was hospitalized, I actually left school and, and homeschooled myself. And yeah, so that, that was kind of one way to take my mind off things and also to spend more time with my brother, but also, um, you know, messing around programming on that computer was, was sort of like a relaxing, um, you know, fun, exciting thing to do, uh, just to sort of keep my mind off things. Yeah. So what was the next step in your evolution in terms of programming and, and then finally discovering Bitcoin? Yeah. So in terms of programming, you know, I didn't, I didn't really do that much back then, uh, beyond maybe, you know, write some stuff in basic and make a few, uh, relatively straightforward websites. And then, you know, for a few years, didn't really do much until, until I was in high school and came across uh, Bitcoin. And I came across Bitcoin on this online form called overclock.net. It was a form about making your computer run faster than it comes uh, to stock from the manufacturer. Uh, it's kind of known as overclocking. That was something I did as a hobby. And I came across Bitcoin there and they were saying that you could mine Bitcoin and basically make money uh, from your computer running overnight, which I thought was interesting. And so I started mining Bitcoin in May of 2011. Eventually, I ended up quitting mining because it made my room about 85 degrees. So I was, it was in the Midwest. It was during the summer. Um, so things got you know literally too hot. <laughs> but that's sort of my first exposure to Bitcoin. How did your interest in Bitcoin then lead to your uh, exploration of cryptocurrency and the idea for Augur? Yeah. So, so after I started kind of getting into Bitcoin in 2011, I basically mined it, um, read the white paper, uh, which is the sort of idea for a currency that somebody had created that, you know, wasn't created by a government, which I thought was interesting because uh, that was the first time I'd seen anything like that beyond gold. But gold wasn't really created. It was just mined. And so I thought that was really fascinating, but I didn't really do a whole lot with it and until maybe, you know, late 2013 when the price started picking back up. Um, I was going to university at the time. I was at Pomona in Southern California and ended up launching a Bitcoin club with a few of my friends and ended up started working on some like point of sale software. The idea was be you could pay with Bitcoin in stores and ended up realizing pretty quickly that Bitcoin itself wasn't a great payment mechanism. It's pretty slow. It's very volatile. The end consumer doesn't really want to pay with it. So I kind of took a step back in the summer of 2014 in fall and thought about like, what do people actually want to do uh, with this tech? What could you do with it? And if you think about Bitcoin, it has really a few main properties. It allows very low fee transfers globally, and it allows those transfers with no limit. So you can send a million dollars for the same cost as sending $10 with Bitcoin, and you can do it all over the globe. And so I thought, okay, well, what else does this apply to? And to me, one of the obvious things was finance. Uh, finance today is inherently not global. It's pretty expensive. And um, there's you know various limits attached to it. And if you look at finance, there's really two main categories. There's underlying assets like stocks, bonds, and there's synthetic assets, which are basically like futures and, and derivatives. And synthetic assets could be made in a digital form because they don't need the actual underlying. A synthetic asset is basically just a bet. And so then if you kind of you know view it sort of in a reductionist way, what you could build is this sort of global peer-to-peer -peer betting platform, which is sort of like Bitcoin, but for betting. 
And that's sort of what we started working on. We started building Augur at the end of uh, 2014. So for the lay audience, could you describe what a, a decentralized prediction market platform is and, and why blockchain and crypto are so well suited for building some of these online gaming platforms? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, de- decentralized prediction market, uh, the concept is that you can basically create markets on anything. So it could be anything from a presidential election, uh, who will win, to, you know, the price of um, some other asset, like the price of Ether, or to the outcome of like a sporting event, like, you know, who's going to win a soccer game. And the core concept behind prediction markets is that the price uh, is, a, is a probability. So for a soccer game, for instance, if the odds are one-to-one or 50%, that means the team has a 50% chance of winning. If a team scores a goal and the odds for team A uh, bump up to 70% or, or 0.7, that means they have a 70% chance of winning. So the idea is that these markets can be predictive and you can get some sort of you know, useful value in them from the predictive capacity alone. Um, that's true even if you're not actually interested in, in placing bets or, or trading on them. That's, that's kind of the core concept. On the decentralization piece, the benefits you get from decentralization are that you could have this sort of global liquidity pool, similar to how Bitcoin is like a global way to send money. Uh, the fees would be much lower. And um, there's sort of no limits in the sense that lots of traditional centralized prediction markets, I would say, are really just betting sites. Uh, so you might go to a bookie like Betfair or Bet365 or something. And in that model, if you start winning, you're winning money from them. It's not peer-to-peer. It's not an actual market, particularly in Bet365's case. And so they have an incentive to cut you off and to basically close your account. Not because you did anything bad, but just because you won money from them. And a prediction market makes it entirely peer-to-peer. It's market-based. And so there's no house that's losing if you're winning. Um, the only people are the other traders. And so that's a pretty different dynamic and um, I think makes for a much more kind of compelling uh, product. Yeah, and it reduces that layer of corruption where somebody can cheat you out of your money, like you said. Yeah, exactly. That's another big problem is um, a lot of these bookies you know, are, are offshore and they don't always pay out, especially if you win a lot. You know, they might say, well, like, you know, we think that, you know, you, you don't actually deserve to be paid out or there, there's always, you know, some reason if you have a very large payout. Um, it doesn't happen a lot. You know, I'd say if you talk to professional bettors, maybe 5 to 10% of their, their amount that they bet uh, has issues getting paid out. But it's a real problem. Now, we should also say, you know, that sort of these, uh, the theory behind these betting uh, and prediction platforms is is the so-called wisdom of crowds, right? That a large group of people may know more about these trends than than individuals. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so there's a, I think he's a New York Times writer, but I'm not sure. But James Surowiecki is, is the author of The Wisdom of Crowds. There's actually a book on it. It's a really good book. I would encourage anybody who's really interested in this stuff to read it. And he talks about starting with a very simple example, like this was discovered, I think, in the 1800s at a fair in, in England. And what they did is they had a contest to guess the weight of an ox. And the sort of key concept behind wisdom of crowds is that you know some people are going to guess very low. They might say, oh, the ox only weighs 100 pounds. Some people may guess very high. They may say it weighs 10,000 pounds. But the people who are uninformed, their answers sort of tend to cancel out. And what surfaces is the actual reality, which is approximately how much the ox weighs. And I think in that specific example, it's actually backed by like real world historical data. Um, they were within, I think, about 2% of the actual weight of the ox. 
to take it a little less abstract, uh, this, this concept also applies to the stock market. So if you think of the, um, I believe it was the Challenger explosion uh, that was called by, caused by faulty O-rings, um, one of the two big NASA rocket uh, catastrophes was, was caused by that. And the market was able to, to figure out which company produced the faulty O-rings. And within a matter of hours, the price of that company had went down by, I think, you know, eight to 10%. And all the other companies that produced O-rings, but not faulty ones, their stocks kind of recovered. But it took, you know, the government, I think, six to nine months to, to do a congressional inquiry and, and figure out, you know, the same conclusion that the market came to in a matter of hours. And that's kind of a really good example of the wisdom of crowds. That's amazing. Um, and the other thing I didn't realize when I first started uh, looking into Augur is that online gambling on sports is actually illegal in many states, uh, as is betting on elections. And so in some ways, what these decentralized platforms do, I guess, is they remove that layer of governmental censorship and, and also opens it up to like markets globally, right? Someone in Beijing could use Augur to bet on a Redskins game. Yeah, I think I think the global you know aspect is very interesting because you can have sort of you know shared liquidity pool. Um, you know, I wouldn't really cons- uh, encourage somebody in the U.S. to create a market on a on a Redskins game because that would probably violate a law in whatever state they're in, but. You know, in a, in a place like China, on the other hand, where it's it's a fairly unregulated market there, you know, you have Bet365, which operates there. Um, I think that's very, really interesting. And the other interesting element, too, is if you look at, like, the betting markets in Europe and China and, you know, wherever, the liquidity isn't really shared today because it's not really like this open protocol. Each company, you know, is operating in a handful of countries and their incentive isn't to share liquidity with their competitors, and so they don't. Uh, it wouldn't even make sense financially for them to do that. Uh, but if you have this sort of open protocol that anyone can access, uh, the liquidity is sort of inherently shared uh, from the beginning, uh, which I think is which is an interesting uh, component of Augur. So how does Augur work? Like if I were uh, somebody who likes to gamble, <laughs> how would I find a prediction market on Augur and bet on something? And where does the cryptocurrency fit in? Yeah, so the way it works is, um, so Augur is entirely peer-to-peer. And so first you need to get access to the Augur interface, um, assuming you're, you're betting with an interface as opposed to programmatically. And there's kind of two main ways to do that. One is it's hosted on IPFS, which is this like decentralized file sharing system. And so you can access that through the regular web. Uh, like Cloudflare, for instance, they host uh, portals into IPFS. And so, you know, in layman's terms, you can access Augur through a, through a link, just like you'd access anything else on the web. And then what happens when you click on that link is everything runs on your kind of own machine in the browser. And what it does is it starts connecting to Ethereum nodes, it starts getting data from Ethereum, and it starts sort of displaying the markets to you. And then what you would do as an actual user is you would sort of search for or look for the market you wanted to bet on. And so, you know, say you wanted to bet on an uh, English Premier League soccer match, you might click on, you know, the soccer category and filter down, or you might just search in uh, the name of your team. Maybe you type in Manchester United or something. And then you would come to the market. Uh, you would look at the price. You would say, you know, hey, Augur says that, you know, the current market price is Manchester has a 60% chance of winning. If you think that feels cheap, then you would basically input the amount that you want to bet on it. And at that point, you need two things. 
you need an Ethereum wallet, which is pretty easy to get nowadays. Like you can get one even using a username and password. If you're not super concerned about security, that would be if you're betting, you know, relatively small amounts. And then the second piece is you need the currency to actually bet in. And right now, Augur uses Ether. Um, and the new version two that's going to launch in a few weeks, uh, it'll use um, DAI, which is the stablecoin pegged to the dollar. And so to acquire DAI, you could buy it on Coinbase. Uh, there's a few other ways you can buy it. If you were, say, in Asia and there wasn't an exchange that had DAI, uh, you could buy Tether, which is pretty easy to get. And then um, there's really easy ways to convert Tether into DAI. And so it's, it's something that you know most countries in the world should be able to get. Online betting is a huge industry. What is the potential for uh, these decentralized crypto prediction markets? Yeah, so I think I think long term, you know, if you if you look at them, you can sort of think about okay, well, what would it look like if you had a betting platform that the liquidity was sort of global and the fees were were very low? Um, if you look at betting today, um, the average user on Betfair is paying roughly five percent of their winnings to Betfair. Um, people who are actually winning a lot, like professional traders they're paying 40%. It's called a premium charge. Uh, most people don't know about it, but it's, it's this fee that you pay um, if, you're, if you're winning a lot on Betfair. And so the fees are really high today. So if you think about like, what would this look like? I think it looks like almost like betting becomes more of like a financial uh, market where it's, it's very efficient. Uh, the fees are very low. Uh, it's sort of inherently global. And that's sort of very different than how betting looks today where you know, you're, you're kind of betting against the house and the house, you know, has the incentive to turn you off and they're incentivized to charge you very high fees. And uh, it's, it's sort of like a rigged game against you versus like if you went into, you know, the stock market and you just made a few random bets, uh, you would sort of like end up probably neither losing nor gaining money uh, if you made enough independent ones. But in betting today, you know, on average, the average better is probably losing 10% on average per bet that they make because it's so uh, rigged against them. Hey, we've talked a lot about the good stuff uh, that's you know uh, associated with these types of uh, markets. And before we talk about some of the other crazy uh, prediction markets that are on Augur and some of the other similar platforms, we should say that when you created it, I mean, because it's a peer-to-peer -peer system that you have no control over what markets are created on Augur, correct? It's just, how does it work? Yeah, that's right. Um, so the, the way it works is somebody can go and create a market basically using whatever free text input they want. And so, um, you know, it's, it's basically sim similar to like the, um, if, you, if you ever heard of, this is kind of inside baseball, but if anybody's ever heard of is the agreements, there's the agreements for swaps in, in traditional finance. Um, they're sort of fill in the blank. You can put in there whatever you want. Um, of course, traditional finance is centralized, but in a peer-to-peer -peer system, it's sort of similar. Um, obviously, these aren't swaps. They're betting markets. But the idea is that you can enter a market um, about really any, any sort of um, real-world event, as long as it has an outcome that's determinable. And so you 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 know you we read about these some of these crazier uh, prediction markets like you know betting on celebrity killings or a political assassination markets and things like that and without going into too much detail uh, how do these types of markets work and how do they come about and and were you concerned when you saw them pop up on your platform? Yeah, so I guess I guess a couple of things you know one one I'd say is you know the 
the platform isn't necessarily our platform in the sense that we can't really control what, what happens on it. But I say more, more kind of high level, the way I think about Augur in general is it's a sort of tool. And so any tool you can use for, you know, good or bad purposes. The classic example is, you know, something like a hammer or a car. Well, either of those you can kill somebody with, but you can also build a house or uh, go on a vacation with your kids. In the case of something like Microsoft Word, you can write a beautiful essay or a poem, or you can also write a ransom note. Um, and the same thing is true is true is here. And so when I thought about you know building Augur, these weren't really use cases I was thinking about as being uh, interesting. In the way I thought about it is you know sort of do the benefits of this tool outweigh uh, the potential negatives of the tool, and and I think that they they do. If you look at it empirically, you know don't take my word for it. Look at the data. Historically, almost no money has been actually bet on these sorts of markets on Augur. Uh, in fact, at the moment, there aren't any markets like this on Augur, but there were, um, I would say, almost two years ago now. The only time they really existed was for a period of about a month uh, right after launch where somebody made them, I think, for shock value. But you know, nobody really traded in those markets besides the person who created it. Uh, one of them, the person traded $50 with themselves uh, to sort of make it look like somebody placed a $50 bet on it. But that, that was a sort of the extent of, of the activity, which I guess is a sort of like positive thing about humanity, which is like, it's actually good that humans, even though they could bet on this stuff, actually don't want to. And, but if you had some kind of a, a well-funded state actor that wanted to do harm, theoretically, they could use something like this to do it. Although, like you said, to date, it's there, there's that shock value, but no one has really leveraged it in that bad way. Yes, yeah, so I think that in terms of a state actor, you know, I think if, if, you know, if I were a state actor, I think the, the way you could potentially leverage this is by maybe, you know, this is something that DARPA and the CIA, want, CIA wanted to do, you know, a decade or so ago, but it sort of got uh, canceled for political reasons. Uh, but, you know, you can make markets on like whether a certain uh, regime change will happen or things like that, not where you're trying to actually incentivize the activity, because things like that, you know, there's not really a dollar sum you can incentivize it with per se, but more to try to elicit what people actually know on the ground. So somebody on the ground knows that, you know, there's this huge protest happening in Egypt. Um, it might be useful to know that, have that priced uh, in the market. I think it would be extremely difficult to actually say, incentivize a protest uh, using market forces. That is just something that people tend to do, uh, those sorts of activities due to very passionate reasons uh, versus like paying them. Well, if you're a nation state who has enough money to pay people to protest, you may just pay them the protest outright. You don't need Augur to do that, you know, as an example. Yeah, it would be a lot simpler, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah way simpler. <laughs> um, just, it's my understanding, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that when you first developed Augur, that there was some kind of a so-called kill switch where you could come in and, and intervene if something, you know, crazy was bet on, but that that kill switch was actually killed. I mean, if, so so what happened there and what would uh, a theoretical kill switch have done and why did you guys get rid of it if you did? Yeah, so it, it wouldn't have done much. What it, what it was was a thing called, a, um, called an emergency stop. And um, for developing smart contracts, which is what, what this technology is called, it's sort of recommended practice that when you create a very complicated one, uh, there's some sort of way to pause it and enable people the ability to withdraw their funds. And so, you know, when we launched the first version of Augur, uh, there was a trusted community member who had the ability to pause everything 
for a window of about two weeks after launch. And the idea was that if somebody found some sort of critical security bug, um, a bug that could lead to people losing lots of money, uh, the idea was that the contract would be paused, people would withdraw their funds, and you know, a new version of Augur would be deployed that that had a fix for it. Um, the these sorts of like pauses wouldn't actually prevent people from, you know, redeploying Augur. So, for instance, if we decided that, you know, we just don't want to work on Augur anymore, we're kind of over it, and we paused it and walked away. Well, first of all, that can only happen the first two weeks ago in, in launch, which is a few years ago. But um, if we decided that, you know, somebody else could just take the code and re-upload it, the real main benefit of that isn't for things like that, but it's more just for to try to prevent security issues if a vulnerability was dis- was discovered um, shortly after launch. And the reason for that is, you know, you can do all the bug bounty programs you want, you can do all the security audits you want, but sometimes, you know, hackers don't really come out uh, of the woodwork until a system is actually live. Have you seen a prediction market on Augur that to you kind of fulfilled your dream of what a decentralized prediction market was designed to do? Oh yeah, that's a really good question. There definitely been a few that I thought that when I saw them, but I don't remember the, them off the top of my head at, at the moment. I think really interesting ones to see, you know, would be things like, you know, will, you know, will SpaceX launch um, XYZ product before a certain date? And there might have been like one or two markets like that that I think were kind of interesting to me. You know, it'd be also interesting to see a market like, you know, will Tesla launch um, full self-driving before a certain date? Things like that where you're sort of getting real good uh, informational value out of them uh, are, are sort of, you know, more intellectually interesting than uh, a random soccer match, as an example. What do you see happening in terms of potential regulation of Augur and similar uh, prediction markets? Uh, I know there have been some legal issues raised and some legal challenges. Where do you see it going? Yeah, so I think if you look at prediction markets, um, there's really, you know, I'd say maybe two to three classes of activities that are regulated or that could be regulated. And I would think those would be uh, market creation. So actually creating the contract on Augur for a specific market. Uh, which is what you're doing when you create a market. You're basically deploying a new contract that has the terms uh, for the market that you're making. And then also potentially trading on those markets. Although if you look at historical regulation, trading is really only re- regulated, you know, so far anyway, when you're doing it sort of like as a business or as like a sort of institutionalized thing. So if you're making a bet, a $50 bet on a soccer match, you know, at least, you know, in most places, like even in the U.S., it's not really a very regulated activity. If you're betting 50,000 on that same soccer match and you're doing this across 100 soccer matches um, over the course of you know, a 10-day period and you do that for three years, that starts to become a regulated activity because it looks a lot like bookmaking where you're actually you know, doing something that, that would traditionally fall under, under regulation. And so I think for that, the way I look at it you know, long-term is that markets will probably be created in jurisdictions where it's favorable to do so, where you can sort of get a betting license to, to do that. And I think the same thing is true of trading. Although for trading, you know, some countries you don't need a license to do it. And so any trading firms that sort of do institutionalized trading on Augur will probably domicile and actually have traders based uh, in countries where it's, where it's you know, more clear cut and easier to do so. Uh, you know, places like the Isle of Man is one example or um, you know, even potentially the UK uh, versus, say, the, the US. And then very long-term, the way I see it playing out 
is if you think of Bitcoin, it's this sort of core underlying protocol uh, where, where Augur is trying to sort of be the same thing, but for, for trading and betting. And if you look at Bitcoin, you have exchanges on top, which are regulated businesses. You know, Coinbase is a regulated business. They do KYC on their customers and they have the ability to get in and out of that system. You have these different exchanges in other countries. I think the same thing will be true of Augur. So people will build, in my opinion, they'll build sports books and things on top of Augur that are regulated, but they're you know, benefiting from the global liquidity pool from Augur. They're benefiting uh, from the way faster settlement, sorry, not faster settlement, way cheaper settlement, and benefiting from not having to run any of the actual operational uh, backend exchange software. And so you can sort of think of it like you're just building a UI on top of Augur. And I think those, you know, long-term, I would see those probably being regulated where, you know, if you're a company that's creating markets on Augur, trading on Augur, and that sort of thing, I think those companies will, will sort of be regulated. So people will build, in my opinion, the short answer is people will build sports books on top of Augur, where those individual sports books get regulated in their respective jurisdiction, but they're sort of accessing uh, the underlying liquidity pool that's shared uh, sort of globally, similar to how Bitcoin works. I'd love to get your insights on where we are in the cryptocurrency industry in general. You know, we had that the heyday of 2017 where the you know it was uh, tons of excitement, prices skyrocketing, and now you're kind of in this <laughs> in the doldrums. What's going on, and and where are we? Where are we headed in the next year and the next two to three years? Would you say? Yeah, I think in, in terms of where the market's headed, you know, you have a couple of big problems still. Uh, one is it's still very difficult to acquire cryptocurrency. I'm a huge fan of, of Coinbase, but it's still actually pretty difficult for the average person to even acquire cryptocurrency through Coinbase. Like if you try to create a new account there, uh, the amount of steps, the amount of time it takes, the amount of time you have to wait, all that stuff, it, it adds up. Um, and if you're a, you know, a crypto geek, who's buying it because you think Bitcoin's going to go up, it's a, that, that's you know, a hurdle worth jumping over. But if you're like a person who came across you know, an application for the first time and you're like, hmm, I wonder if this crypto stuff is actually even useful, maybe I'll try it with $100 and see where it goes. Um, an example might be a better on Augur who's comparing it to a centralized option. You know, it's probably not worth the hurdle for them to wait a week to get their money. And so that's still a big problem is the fiat on that problem. I think lots of people are working on that, but it's going to take a few years for it to really get solved where you can onboard and get crypto very quickly. Um, the other problem is scalability. And that's sort of in the phase where people are launching test networks that have the ability to do hundreds of transactions per second, but they're not you know, in production yet. Um, I think by the end of this year, we'll maybe see one or two of those in production. Uh, certainly by the end of next year, uh, we'll see a good handful of those in production. And I think you sort of need both of these things uh, for the space to start to take off from like a fundamentals, actually useful standpoint. Um, from the price standpoint, you know, I think with the halving coming up, um, I think that's going to be pretty solid, positive uh, price pressure for Bitcoin. For those who don't know, the halving is this sort of concept that the amount of Bitcoin printed or mined every day, uh, starting, I think, in roughly May this year, will cut in half. So there's going to be less supply that's on the market. And if the demand stays constant, that would make the price uh, start to go up. But I think from a fundamental standpoint, which is what I'm more excited about, you know, things start to look very interesting around the end of this year. 
given all the regulation that's already set in uh, and is bound to set in and even more, you know, in the coming years, will people ever be able to make the kind of money they made back, say, when you were, you know, uh, a, a young user of Bitcoin and mining Bitcoin and, you know, it's kind of the, it's kind of that period over? Well, I think, I think in terms of, you know, percentage increases, you know, Bitcoin, I think, has gone up, you know, 10,000 X or something like that since the beginning. So that's obviously not going to happen again. It would be worth more than the global economy, I think, if it went up 10,000 X. But, you know, Bitcoin certainly could go up 10 X from here. Uh, that would put it sort of on par with the market cap of gold um, or a little bit lower. And you could view Bitcoin as a sort of digital uh, version of gold. Um, the other area where I think you could potentially make, you know, returns um, would be in things outside of Bitcoin. So if you look at the ecosystem around Ethereum, it's sort of trying to make a decentralized version of finance. And stuff there isn't nearly as expensive as Bitcoin is. You know, it's sort of more like Bitcoin in 2011, both in terms of pricing, but also in terms of um, actual adoption and and uh, how far along it is and how far it has to go and, and that sort of thing. And so I'd say, you know, yeah, you're, you're not going to make the same returns that, you know, I bought buying Bitcoin at, say, $20 back in, in 2011. But, the, you know, the, the next kind of big thing never looks like the last one. And I think there are areas, even within cryptocurrency, where, you know, as a savvy investor, you can make really solid returns over the next, you know, five years if any of these other areas beyond just digital gold uh, start to play out. And is there any one area that people should keep an eye on as sort of the next area to watch? Yeah, yeah. to me, it's, it's sort of decentralized finance. Um, you know, I think if you look at what, what this tech could be used for, it really can be used for money, a digital store of value. And then if you look at money, you know, well, what do you use money for? Well, people buy stuff with it, but they also use it in various financial activities to try to make more money or to try to hedge against various risks. And so if you could have a financial system that was very efficient, global with very low fees and um, sort of like the equivalent of Bitcoin, but for finance, I think that would be a really compelling use case. Looking back at your younger self, you know, when you first discovered Bitcoin and your journey over the last, uh, what, decade or more, uh, do you have any thoughts on sort of what you have learned and, and the person you've become as a result of understanding this new technology? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, um, yeah, I think one thing I thought, you know, back then is that like all the good opportunities would be taken up super quickly. But that's not really, it's not really true. You know, there's still a ton of new opportunities in the space uh, to create businesses that people haven't really done. So I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty rare that you're actually too late to an industry, I guess would be something I've learned. Um, it's much, much easier to be too early. So I guess that that's kind of one thing. The other thing is just that, you know, you're, you're kind of always still learning, uh, especially in an industry that moves as fast as crypto. It feels like, you know, if, if I just like went, you know, away from my keyboard for a year, I would probably feel very dumb when I came back. Uh, so you have to kind of be constantly paying attention uh, is the other thing. Awesome. Joey, thank you so much for joining me today and for the great conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Joey Krug is the co-CIO at Pantera Capital, one of the largest blockchain-focused investment firms. Krug also is co-founder of the Forecast Foundation and the core developer of Augur, a decentralized prediction market platform. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. 
Thanks for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with strategy, brand positioning, and narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.